Hey, it's your host, Farm Girl here. Welcome to the second episode in Talk Farm to Me's Straight Talk series. Straight Talk features a first take, one cut recording of a conversation with one farmer, and we get into it. Today we get the chance to hang out with Kamal Bell of Sankofa Farms in Eflin, North Carolina. He's farming vegetables and keeping bees. I caught up with Kamal while he was on the farm and we talked quite literally from his tractor. There's a lot more going on with his farm than just veggies and bees. Let's start the conversation and you'll see what I mean. First off, I would like to really understand your personal history as a farmer, how you got started and if you have family history in farming and just the why. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. My parents, on my mom's side, her dad had a farm when they were growing up. And there's also like a, the other side of history of like us and farming too, that I won't go in depth with, but farming is in my family, like inadvertently or indirectly. And with my grandfather, I think I picked up his like skill set for uh, farming. He started a grocery store in his community to help people have access to food. I didn't put it together until like I was talking to somebody one time and they mentioned it and I was telling them my story in his. I think that's been ingrained in me and really like indirect. I didn't realize that I had picked that up as well. I actually had the chance to go to public and private school and this is where my perspective started to develop on how resources were allocated. So when I got the chance to go to a college, I wanted to go to a historically black college because most of my peers from all of high school to middle school have been white, primarily. And once I got the chance to go to HBCU. Just so you know, HBCU is historically black colleges and universities. That's when I really started to come into this idea of becoming a farmer because I wanted to be able to provide a product and resources to my community. And once that I established that, I learned about food deserts. And once I learned about food deserts, that like put me into overdrive to really saying like, you know, I want to purchase this farm and I'm going to be able to produce products that go to people who are affected by food deserts. So that was like my, ultimately like the thing that pushed me overboard. And also at the time I was, uh, me and my girlfriend at the time, who's not my wife, we found out we were having a son. So I always wanted to make sure additionally that I could provide and like, like ideally like put food on the table. So that was my, like that's, those are my two reasons. The fact that I wanted to I'll be able to support my family and the other side that I wanted to be able to help people in food deserts. So what are you talking about with this indirect connection to farming? So the indirect connection to farming is just the history of, uh, of slavery. And we've actually looked back in records and my family were farmers. The furthest we got back would have been like right outside of slavery and sharecropping. Those two systems, they actually go hand in hand. And we saw that some of my uh, ancestors were actually farmers. Let's put a time frame on slavery and sharecropping as a reference point. Following the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolishing slavery in 1865, former slaves celebrated their long-awaited freedom and then faced immediate hardship. Many ended up farming their former slave owners' land in sharecropping arrangements, where rent was paid with a share in the expected crop yield. Many of these arrangements were harsh with contracts that favored the landowners and landed black farmers in debt, 
with no opportunity to own land. And actually, my great grandmother, she had a farm. She uh, tended to chickens, and I think he got that bug too. We have a, a indirect relationship with farming, and it's, it's really affected our, our perspective in the African American community of farming. When Kamal's great grandparents were farmers, it was pretty common. Today, barely 1% of farmers in the United States are African American. So you, we have individuals who like, might be interested, but the majority of us, like, you don't see us on TV being farmers, and that's not being um, said to us. We'll pick another route because the media ultimately controls a lot of uh, how we perceive careers. So I think that it's just been interesting to see people warm up to the fact that I'm a beekeeper, that I grow vegetable crops, I work with you at the farm. It's kind of like challenging all of our ideals we developed about the farm. I'm glad that you shared that with me. Can we talk for just a little bit before we get into these issues? Can we talk about your farm particularly? what you're growing, where you're selling it, how you're doing that. Can you talk to me about that? So right now the farm is 12 acres, but we're only working on three right now. And we have some pretty cool plans that I want to spoil, but we have some pretty cool things coming up with the farm this spring. And we're right now we have four tunnels or uh, catapult tunnels. And they're like they're greenhouses to anyone who's new doesn't know what catapult tunnels are. And what we're able to do with them is grow all year round. So the type of things that we grow here are uh, kale, lettuce, mustard greens, um, and collard greens right now. We'll be doing some more chard later in the year for the spring, well, the early part of the spring. We're going to be doing tomatoes, watermelons, cucumbers, and squash as well, and okra. So those are some of the things that we grow. And right now we're working with distribution services that may have a mission to get food to people in food deserts, or they may have a mission to get people who have been recommended by the physician to eat healthy. And then we actually just started a partnership with a uh, called Life on the Table with the United Methodist uh, Church. So those are the primary three organizations that purchase food from Sankofa right now. And that's also going to grow as we ramp up production here at the farm. Now, you just mentioned the name of your farm, Sankofa, and I did a little research that it is part of the Akan language from Ghana. And literally, it translates to, it is not taboo to go back and fetch what you forgot, or more loosely, go back and get it. Now, why is that the name of your farm? Tell me about that. So Sankofa, we understand it in another way, which is the same premise, but we think about it as to remember our African ancestry as we, as we move forward, forward in life. So it's literally to go back and get it, um, and don't forget what has been lost. So I chose the name Sankofa because I wanted to build an institution in a uh, business that actually was centered around our culture and, and our value system and not build something that wasn't associated. No matter what I do or no matter what anybody who identifies as being a person of African descent, no matter what you do at any point, we are African people. And we have to make sure that we embody our culture if we want to solve solutions. We can't use bits and pieces of other groups and then try to uh, utilize them to fix our situation. I'm a firm believer that we need to be able to use our own history and our own legacy and our values to fix our present day problems. And in that, we have to then learn about those, learn about our culture, learn about who we are as a people. And that gives us a better idea of how to move forward in this day and age. 
how did you come to get the land that you farm on and how did you get started? So the, we actually purchased our farm through the Farm Service Agency. That's a long story. We faced racism with the USDA at the point in acquiring the farm. Like I was really denied the farm because they said I didn't meet the experience qualifications that they had. But I literally was running a business, an agricultural business. My undergraduate degree is in animal industry. My master's degree is agricultural education. And then I also had managerial experience at North Carolina a Farm. And they still try to deny me so we had to appeal the farm. But part of their process was to have an offer of purchase for um, the farm. And I luckily just literally Googled this place and found it. I didn't have any, I don't have any connection to this area that I know of, but I literally Googled this place and then this, this became my farm. Racial discrimination is not new at the USDA. In April of 1999, the Pigford versus Glickman class action lawsuit was decided in favor of 400 Southern black farmers. Timothy Pigford, who filed the lawsuit, was a corn and soybean tenant farmer in North Carolina. The victory underscored racial discrimination by the USDA with regard to farm loans and assistance to black farmers. Over 13,000 farmers received settlements totaling nearly $1 billion in the largest civil rights settlement to date. So I can see how we get this, this big gap in land ownership if these guys are staying in these positions and they're bringing people up like them, they're making sure, like, really, what this guy did, as I started reading more and more Black farmer stories, it was the same exact thing. Went and picked up the farm. They tried to get me to bundle my house in with the land because they know if one fails, like, you can't pay one and take the other. Like, it's little tricks like that that they use on people. And, I like, literally, when I read other stories, I'm like, dang, this is exactly what they were trying to do to me. So... It's just a cycle of values that they make sure that they instill. But I do think things may change with them in the, in the, in the coming years, but it's going to take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it needs to be another organization separately that's supporting Black farmers. Like maybe we should start thinking about that. Like instead of depending on that system, um, maybe we create another system that specifically supports Black farmers so we don't have to even worry about this happening again. So let's talk a little bit more deeply about food deserts and food insecurity as it has to do with your local community there in North Carolina, but also more in general. Yes, I'm not a real big person on using a specific definition. I kind of take it as my own. So I define a food desert as a place where people don't have uh, readily access. There's a radius that the USDA uses, but I simply don't use that radius because I think that there are a couple different parameters that create a food desert. The USDA defines a food desert as a low-income census tract where a substantial number or share of the residents has low access to a supermarket. That doesn't quite get at or even near the heart of the matter. What's more important to think about when you hear the label food desert is to think about the lack of investment over multiple decades in poor and often predominantly Black communities. Kamal is addressing the real definition of food desert in his North Carolina community in multiple ways. Listen closely. Kamal explains further. So what I like to do is I like to do the education piece. We like to have the food ready. We like to incorporate youth to challenge this idea of what healthy food is. Because the healthy food movement it's not that African-Americans don't want to eat healthy food. It's just that culturally, 
these items aren't relevant to us. Like these aren't things that we normally cook with. So when there's research being conducted, they're saying that people don't buy the healthy food, but it's more so in the sense of what you're accustomed to eating. So we've just been really trying to do our best at challenging the notion of what healthy food is per se. So a lot of the crops that we, we grow here at the farm, we would try to make sure they have a connection to our culture and a connection to Africa. Does your definition of food desert or food insecurity intersect in some ways with what's happening in terms of the USDA's definition? It, it does, just based on the fact that we, we both, I guess, emphasize that people aren't having access to healthy food. So I believe in an urban area, it's a mile radius, and I think in an urban area, it's a 10-mile radius. I'm just real big on, like, that's not all that dictated if a person gets healthy food. There's a transportation issue, there's an economic issue, there's a, a cultural, like, there are all these different parameters that make up what we call a food desert. There's a zoning issue, like all these different things make up what the food desert is. And that definition doesn't really incorporate that. So in just looking at a lot of issues that are in our community, they're often like one-sided and you don't see there's a larger system that influences and creates these issues. It's like thinking about the farming industry across cultural barriers, there are a whole lot of different parameters that all that create the issues and the challenges that we see in farm. And it's not just a one-sided, it's like one-sided, it's, not, it's a shared experience amongst farmers. So I like to look at things from that perspective. So we're not like kind of cornered into a position of agreeing with or like not being one way. There's just different, there's just different ways that you have to address these issues. Do you have a community of Black farmers there in North Carolina and peers and mentors uh, that you work with? I do. I do. I actually just got off the phone with a farmer in Chapel Hill today. We talk, we, we're talking like almost every week. And um, there's another older uh, gentleman um, in Durham who I talk to very regularly. And they're, they serve as like my mentors to help me with the idea of the farm. And it's also just to give me good feedback on um, some, of that, some of the things that we're working on out here. We just all share ideas. so. If they have an idea, they might run it by me. We talk about it. If I have an idea, it's mostly me asking them questions and presenting ideas. And they're very, very helpful with, the, with helping uh, develop the, the direction. And look, especially with the growing, like the growing aspect, the vegetable crop operation. I mean, that's not my strong point. My strong point is the bees. So just being able to bounce ideas off of them really gives me a sense of direction that I can follow. I want to do a little bit of a history review here for a second, because there are some really interesting numbers to talk about as we get into the next part of what I hope we can talk about. In the late 1860s, we had General William Sherman declaring 40 acres and a mule. That did not come to fruition. And when we look at some of the numbers, we had sort of a peak in the 1940s of African-American farmers and from 1940 to 1974, that number, which was at about 700,000, fell 93% to 45,000. And now, today, in 2021, we have approximately 45,000 Black farmers still. And that is out of 3.4 million farmers. So only a very small percentage of our farming population is black and 95% of rural land is owned by white farmers. That is a lot to get your head around. 
And I wanted to talk to you about, in particular, the Justice for Black Farmers Act that Senator Cory Booker introduced in November of last year, in November of 2020. And I thought it was interesting. I actually printed the entire bill. It's Senate Bill 4929, and it says as its headline that its purpose is to address the history of discrimination against Black farmers and ranchers to require reforms within the Department of Agriculture, which you mentioned, to prevent future discrimination and for other purposes. And, and at, the, at the center of it is uh, a desire to distribute 160 acres of land to Black farmers. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on this and what you know about it. My perspective on this is if we can make sure that the younger generation is educated to be, and in their programs, that allow people who are already in farming to become uh, 21st century farmers, I think the bill will be very effective. If we're just talking about the land transition, that's kind of hard for me just because of all the different systems of farming now. And then the startup costs, and then just making sure people can find their market. It's a very ambitious goal. I think, I think it can happen, but I think it really starts with supporting the farmers and supporting youth who may have an interest in farming. Because I, I taught at an urban school and the students love farming. But when they left my middle school, they were district to schools that didn't have agricultural programs. So there are barriers that I think that has to be addressed. But I think it's, it's ambitious and I think it would be um, very helpful if the youth are in the education piece. I think that, that's just my, my opinion, the education piece has to be the focal point of a, of a bill like that. I want to get to that and your role in that in one second, but I just thought I would mention, you know, I've been talking to farmers on farmers on farmers in all different industries, and especially small farmers, no matter what their race is, <laughs> they are struggling. You know, like you said, they're struggling with startup costs, and when you're talking 21st century, they're struggling with you know, tractor expenses and breaking equipment and getting to a market and autonomy and all of that. So I think that your suggestion and, you know, 160 acres is one thing, but as you know, there's a lot more between getting the land and getting something out of it and making money, supporting your family than just, you know, than just having the land itself. Those are all things I think the bill has to cover. And I often see that part left out of an agricultural initiative, just in general, is the education of the youth. And I, I haven't quite figured out why, but that just seems to be a trend in agriculture across the board. Like the youth aren't being prepared to, to tackle these problems. Well, it sounds like you know, 160 acres per black farmer is sort of a sexy headline, but saying let's educate a bunch of kids on how to farm isn't <laughs> as sexy a headline, <laughs> but it's the headline you get. So let's talk about your agricultural academy and what you're doing with young people to fill this void. So when I, um, what I decided to do when I started the farm, I was also teaching at the moment and 
what ended up happening was I saw that the students were interested in the farm. And I was like, let me see if we can start a program at the school with these, with these students who everybody said was at risk and all this like hoopla. Basically, it's a whole bunch of, it's a narrative that's created so you don't punt resources to actually empowering the students. Like, oh, the school's going to free and reduce lunch. That bad thing is going at home. They want to be like, it's a whole bunch of stuff to, to, to like justify why they don't invest in the child as much as they should. So when I saw this, I'm just like, look, I see the students literally improve by being in my class. So the principal at the time, I took the idea of the farm to her. And she ended up saying, no, she didn't want to do it. So I ended up saying, you know, I'm, I'm acquiring this farm at the time. Let me go ahead and just start the program with the youth. So I brought some of the students out here and they've been at the farm for five years. And they've just been learning how to build things. They've been learning how to help their community. They've been learning, learning about what they're interested in. Four out of the six students in the program are certified beekeepers. The students set, set up the irrigation lines, they operate the equipment. They are in the YouTube content with us. They've just, just grown from being at the farm. And I just think about how important that is because sustainability isn't just from a from a practical aspect working with plants. Like it, it, to me, the sustainability comes in with working with people. That's how you ensure that the system is maintained is when you pass the ideals on to the younger generation. So we take a sustainability approach from a humanistic aspect and not from um, a farming per se aspect. I like your philosophy. I don't think I've ever heard it put that way before where the sustainability and the regeneration that everyone is talking about. They're talking about soil and they're talking about carbon sequestration, but mm -hmm. nobody's talking about, you know, raising the next generation of farmers in that way. And I think that's really interesting. I have loved talking with you. I'm wondering if there's something that you'd really like to talk about before we go. So we have plans to develop the additional nine acres once we get this whole space into production. So there's secret plans? Yeah, there, there are secret plans. I don't want to give out yet. Yeah, we have some really cool things that are that you'll see from the farm that I think people will really enjoy in the coming um, year, year or two. I just hope that people at Sankofa Grows sees that it's a model. Like it's much bigger than the space here and that it will grow and there'll be a lot of opportunity for people to support its growth. So I'm just um, excited that we're gonna be able to build community with more people. I'm excited to see that happen and to have you back when you're ready to talk about your new big secret thing that you won't tell me about. <laughs> I'll be back to talk about it. Okay, I like that. Farmer Kamal Bell of Sankofa Farms is farming three of his 12 acres, training young people to farm and to keep bees, distributing healthy food through churches and social service organizations to reach people in food deserts and forging a career path for black farmers. Kamal shared how legislators need to think more strategically about the bills they put forward because the true definition of sustainable agriculture involves our young people being able to farm well in a 21st century world. The Justice for Black Farmers Act died in committee last year. It was, however, resurrected by its original sponsor, Senator Cory Booker, and joined by new Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock. 
keep your eyes on this bill. And Senators Booker and Warnock, maybe you guys want to sit down for a chat with Farmer Kamal Bell of Sankofa Farms. There's still time to go back and get it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Talk Farm to Me's Straight Talk. You can find Farmer Kamal Bell on Instagram at Sankofa Farms. And you can find this podcast at Talk Farm to Me. I hope that you'll connect with me there too. Come and say hello at XOXO Farm Girl. For more information and show notes for this episode, including some key books and podcast resources about the topics we've discussed, head over to talkfarmtome.com and stay tuned for a new episode coming soon. <laughs>